We did not finish the chapter the last time we were together, so we, we have to look at one more account in that chapter, and then we'll make our effort or make our way through chapter three as the Lord allows. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the word. We appreciate it. Lord, uh, I don't even know if our hearts fully understand just how at peace we are when we sit under your word. We can let all of our guards down and we can just receive from you confident that what we are receiving is truth and how much we need that. And, and Father, we delight in the opportunity to gather together, whether uh, we sit by ourselves with our Bible or we're with a small group of people, or we come together collectively in this way. Um, so we do pray that you would minister through your word to us. Lord, that in a sense, uh, the holiness of this activity would be impressed upon our hearts. Lord, that the potential distractions of our day and our week ahead of us would be able to be put aside for a moment and we might receive from you. And, and Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And so come and minister in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, this is our third study in the book of uh, Esther. And so we've seen a few things already. Excuse me. We've seen a few things already in the chat, in the book, I should say, two major events that we've looked at already. The first had to do with chapter one, and it had to do with the rise of a new king, a new emperor over the Persian Empire. You remember his name is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes historically, Xerxes the first. And that gives us a good time. We have an idea of when he ruled. We know he was the ruler of roughly around the year 480 B.C. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Esther, we're introduced to this particular fellow. We learn a little bit about his desire that he wants to go and conquer the, the world even further than he already did, that he's going to go and he's going to attack Greece and so on. But before being able to do so, he has to convince others, we can do this. We have all the resources, all the money, all the power. We can do anything we want to do. And so as chapter 1 in our Bibles tells us, he throws this great feast. And it's a feast that's designed to show off the wealth and the splendor and the pomp and the glory of the nation or the empire of Persia so that the people will be convinced that, you know what, we could do anything we want to do. Our king is all powerful. We have all the resources in the world. Now, if you read chapter one, you were with us for chapter one, you know that that party didn't end the way Xerxes wanted it to end. That it actually ends not that we have the power to do anything we want, but a demonstration that the king can't even get his wife to comply with a request of his to come see him. And if he can't get his wife, who supposedly loves him, to agree to do something for him, how's he going to get an enemy nation like Greece or the nation state of Greece to do so? And so that was chapter one. And we look at that and we're like, okay, thanks for sharing. You know, why is this in our Bibles or whatever? And I spent some time considering, well, you need to know that because that leads into chapter two. And so then we spent some time considering chapter 2 when Queen Vashti uh, did not come when her king had called for her to come. And so she's out. She's fired. And we're going to get a new queen. And to get a new queen, we, gotta get a new, uh, we have to have a beauty contest. And in that beauty contest, we learned that there's a beautiful young woman in the land, uh, a Jewish girl, captive in the land. But again, there was a lot of freedom even for the captives. And so this young lady, she goes on and she becomes now the new queen. And you're like, Okay. I, I, maybe I understand why we're learning this story because she's Jewish and a lot in the Bible has to do with the Jews, particularly in the Old Testament. And so, okay, I, I still understand why I need to know that. Well, you needed to know chapter one so you could understand chapter two. You need to understand chapter two so that you can understand chapter three. 
And so today, as we move into chapter 3, we're moving along. And what we're seeing that God is doing is God is navigating the circumstances of human life to bring us to the places we are. I use the example of a chessboard. He's moving the chess pieces around to get to the place where he's going to accomplish the plans and the purposes that he has. And so today, uh, we're going to be primarily looking at chapter 3. But there's one more event in chapter 2 which is also going to have bearing on events later. And so we'll start there. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 2, it says this, Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai. Now, Mordecai's her uncle, if you weren't with us. As Mordecai, her uncle, had commanded her, For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Again, if you weren't with us, uh, Esther's parents died and Mordecai raised little Esther. And so she obeyed him just as she had done so when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So again, Mordecai is the uncle now of the queen of Persia. And the last time that we saw him was during the beauty contest. He would daily kind of go to the gate of the palace to find out how his daughter was doing. It said in that particular time he would be walking in, front, uh, walking in front of the court of the harem. And his purpose is clear, so that he can check on Esther. How is she doing? Remember, a whole year she was there getting ready for this particular beauty contest. And then the beauty contest went on for a whole other year. And so during that time he's checking in on her. But now notice in verse 19 of chapter 2, now he is sitting at the king's gate. And so prior, he was kind of at the king's gate. Now he's sitting at the king's gate. And we spent some time talking about what a phrase like that means. The gate of a city, or in this case, the the king's gate, was the place where official business was done. And a person that would be sitting at the king's gate was a person that was participating in the official business of the government or of the king. And so here now, what we learn is that Mordecai is now an official of the empire, something it doesn't seem like he was before. And so I suspect Esther becomes queen, and she puts in a good word, you know, for Uncle Morty, and he gets a job. And so now he is working for the kingdom there. He has this position. The opportunity has been opened up. And the Lord uses that. The Lord uses the position that Mordecai is in to accomplish his purposes. And for those of you that are familiar with the book of Esther, just like he's going to use the position that Esther will be in to accomplish his purposes. It's because Mordecai has to get up and shave and go to work and be there by 9 a.m. or whatever time he starts his day that he happens to be in the place where he gets to hear the story of this assassination plot or the planning of this assassination plot. So verse 21 and 22, it tells us these two men, Big Thin and Teresh, sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You've probably been around people that are bad whisperers. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I've got to tell you a secret. Like, we all hear you, you know what I mean? And we're more intrigued because you're a bad secret teller. 
or whatever. And so these guys here apparently were bad whisperers. And over, Mordecai overhears that they seek to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The knowledge comes to him. He shares that knowledge with his uh, niece. And she, as you saw in the passage there, she will go on to tell. So he takes that information and he moves on behalf of the king to squelch the assassination. The Lord uses him in the place that he is, puts him in that place for a specific purpose so that he might accomplish his purposes. The Mordecai, and I like the way I wrote this. I'm going to tell you how I wrote it. Mordecai would be in this place at this time to overhear these men. He's in this place at this time to overhear these men. And again, what the Lord is doing, God in his providence is shining through in the pages of the book of Esther. Now, I admire Mordecai here because Mordecai could have heard this and he could have thought, well, ain't my problem. He ain't my king. You hear those phrases a lot uh, in the last 10 years or so in the United States. Well, not my president, not my king. He could have heard this and said, look, I'm just a captive in this land. It's not my problem. I'm not getting involved. I'm just going to stay out of it. Imagine if Mordecai would have went and told on these two men, and these two men, they're bad whisperers, but maybe they're good liars, and they get out of it, what's going to happen to Mordecai? You see, so a lot of people, look, I'm not getting involved. It's not my problem. You deal with it over there. All kinds of trouble here. Forgive me. I tried. It's wrapped around my, oh, emergency. Thank you. Woo. Okay. So this guy, he takes uh, a stand, potentially at great risk to himself, and he goes down and he makes this uh, threat known to others. The others then, they begin to investigate it. They, they check out the guy's computers. The FBI is all over their house, and they find that there's assassination plans. And so with that, they, you know, they're not going to delay at all. They're going to execute these guys immediately. It says there that they, they hang them on the gallows. That's, more, that's sort of a contemporary explanation of what they did. Uh, we think of, you know, they, they strung them up or whatever. The reality is they impaled them. They would essentially have them sit on a sharpened pole of sorts, a stick of sorts, and then they would just pull them down and they would impale them until it would come out of their throat and they would die. And often they would do that to their entire families. Uh, we'll see that a little bit later in the book as well. Horrible, horrible way to die. Um, I just wanted to make it more gruesome for you while you're sitting there thinking, oh, what a sweet book. Oh, good, they hung him. No, no, <laughs> they hung him is what they did. And so notice verse 23, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai saved the life of the king. And you should know, eventually King Ahasuerus was assassinated about, 20, about 12 years after this particular event. He was eventually assassinated. That's how he died. And so this is a real threat. They assassinated these emperors and, and so on. And so you have this guy is killed, Morde or is going to be killed. Mordecai saves his life. And what's his reward? They put his name in the minutes of the government interaction. Now, I don't know how many of you are involved in boards and things like that. Does anybody here read minutes for like fun or whatever? <laughs> typically what happens with minutes is some people do, okay, but typically what happens with minutes is somebody writes them, the board's like, yeah, good enough, and you put them in a little file and you shove it away and nobody ever looks at it again. And so Mordecai here, I saved the life of the king. 
where's my party? Where's the celebration? You know, shouldn't you be having me, you know, honoring me in some particular way? And instead, all I get is a little blurb in a book that nobody's ever going to read? Now, if Mordecai's like a lot of us, we might look at that and say, you know what? I took a risk, a great personal risk, and I stood up and said something I didn't need to say, and nobody thanks me. Nobody recognizes me. Nobody looks at me and says, wow, you're a hero. We love you. That's the last time I'm going to take a stand for something like that. Perhaps you, like Mordecai, have felt that some of your good deeds have gone unnoticed by others. That can be pretty frustrating. It can be pretty frustrating. And for a lot of people, it opens up the possibility to bitterness, and it brings them to a place where you're like, well, you know what? I'm not going to get involved in, in anything ever again. Why should I take a risk? But here, here's what I want us to see in this particular passage. God, in his wisdom, chooses to allow Mordecai's, quote-unquote, good deed to go unnoticed at this time for a very specific purpose and to accomplish something very specific uh, as well. Because the timing was not yet right for his good deed to go noticed. And so what I want you to do in your Bibles, flip over just a chapter to chapter 6 for a moment. We're going to look at this in more in depth when we get there, certainly so. But chapter 6, I'll just read the first three verses. It says, now on that night the king could not sleep. This is six years later. At that night the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Bring me the minutes, that'll put me to bed. <laughs> and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, well, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing had been done. So it just so happens that five years later, the king is having trouble sleeping one night, causing him to look for something to put on the bed. You know, people drink hot milk or whatever. Other people put on boring news. People start reading boring uh, information or whatever. Something that might put me to sleep. And it just so happens that when he tells one of his servants there, read to me something boring, that they happen to take out the minutes. Now, that's understandable. But they just happen to grab the minutes from five years earlier, and they begin to reveal that or read that. And in reading that, it reveals about this plot to take the king's life. And perhaps the king had even forgot about the plot to take his life. Maybe there's a lot of plots to take his life. But in there, he says, how about that? You mean people were trying to kill me? And somebody saved my life? What do we do for that guy? He asked that particular question. This was the moment that the Lord chose that he would reward Mordecai for his good deed. And though initially... It didn't seem so, because initially, maybe Mordecai, there was some bitterness for not being recognized. Initially, it may not have seemed that it would be better off to postpone it for a bunch of years later. The reality is this. It was the perfect time, five years later, for his deed to be rewarded. So imagine, again, if the response to the king's question in verse 3, what was done for this guy who saved my life? Imagine if the response was, oh, king, you may recall we had a small reception in the rose garden for him. We gave him a little plaque, and, and I understand it hangs on his wall. Then the king would have said, oh, that's good. I'm glad we did something nice for him, and moved on from there. But instead, what the king hears is, well, nothing was done for him. 
And so this, this event, this decision not to do anything for him back here may have embittered him, may have frustrated him, may have made him angry, but it was actually God's plan for him to go through those things so that he could accomplish greater purposes. So Mordecai has a choice here, in a sense. He could either have a little plaque on his wall and the fond memories of the Rose Garden ceremony, or he could save the entire race of the Jewish people. That's the choice that is there before him. Okay, he doesn't know that, but that's what God is doing here. And instead what the king hears is, well, nothing has been done for him. And the king, I, no doubt, is nothing's been done for him. That's crazy. He saved my life. Something should be done for him. And because nothing was done for him five years earlier, the king is willing to do anything, it seems, for him. Let's really go all out. No rose garden ceremony, no plaque. We've got to go all out for this guy. And a little while he's going to ask, what should be done to honor the man, et cetera, that the king favors. And they said, give him a big parade and, and all kinds of stuff. And we'll, we'll look at that when we get to it. But the point is this here. This is the exact timing that God had intended to accomplish his purposes. And it's perfect timing. And it doesn't always seem like perfect timing in the midst of it. But the lesson here that I think we can learn from the pages of Esther, from the example of Mordecai, is this. You can trust the Lord. Even though you don't always like the circumstances, even though you don't always understand the circumstances or God's reasoning, you can trust the Lord, you can rest in his perfect timing, and you can resolve yourself to the reality that God's ways are beyond your ways, that God's ways are better than your ways. And Mordecai may not understand what is going on here, but on the pages of Scripture, we can understand, we can learn, and we can apply these things to our lives. And so we have, at the end of chapter 2, this instance here where Mordecai discovers this plot and essentially has a big reward coming to him, a chip, that will be cashed in a little bit later. So why do we have this particular story? Well, because it's going to come back up later on in the book of Esther. Okay, now that brings us to chapter 3. So let's read chapter 3. It actually brings us to the, the events of chapter 3 and chapter 4. But I understand some of you have brunch plans and things like that, so we won't stay here till 3 in the afternoon. We'll do 3 today, we'll do 4 next week as the Lord allows. Starting in chapter 3, it says, Now after these things... King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who's also at that gate, does not bow down or pay homage. So chapter 3 begins the same way that chapter 2 begins. Both of them begin with that phrase, after these things. And as we saw last week, the after these things in chapter 2, there's a three-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here we also have a multi-year gap. Now we have a five-year gap between the events of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so we know the year. The year is 474, 475. Maybe we don't. We, we, we have that rough idea. It says 12th year a little bit later on uh, of the king. And so we're right in that time period there, 474 B.C., no doubt, plenty of other stuff occurred in the history of the empire of the Persians that aren't recorded for us. But by God's design, this particular event, these particular things are given to us in the Holy Scripture. And what we learn is that the king now promotes a guy by the name of Haman. Notice there in verse 1, it says, King Ahasuerus promotes Haman and sets his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
So maybe comparable today, King Haman, be, or excuse me, Haman becomes sort of the prime minister. And so, you know, for instance, in England, they have a queen, but someday maybe they'll have a king, but they don't really do anything. From what I understand, they're ceremonial. The person who's really in charge and running things is the prime minister. And, and so Haman here, in so many ways, has risen up. He becomes the prime minister of this nation. Haman also, you'll notice there in verse 1, it tells us that he's an Agagite. And we look at that and we're like, well, that's nice. Like, what is an Agagite? It's a rough uh, handle to have, certainly so. Why include that information in there? Why, include, why not just say he promoted a guy named Haman? Why do we need to know that the guy is an Agagite? Well, this, I think, is, is exciting for us. I beg to differ. Some of you are thinking. I think this is exciting. And here's why. The Apostle Paul will say in the New Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, in godliness. Jesus would describe the Old Testament law, and he would say not one jot or one tittle will pass away until the, the law is fulfilled, the word is fulfilled. Okay? Now, a jot and a tittle, they were tiny little marks. They're basically like apostrophes or commas in uh, the Hebrew language. And so you might think, we might say something like the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. The smallest marks in our language here, Jesus says, are significant. All scripture is God-breathed, which means this. There's a reason why your Bible says, doesn't say Haman was appointed prime minister, but it says Haman the Agagite was appointed prime minister. And as you're reading your Bible and as you're studying your Bible and you come across something like that, that's a clue to you Hey, Bible reader, dig in a little. There's a reason I chose that word, those couple words, and put them in there. Go find out why. And you go and you dig in. And as we go and we dig in, we find out why the Lord chose to tell us that this man was an Agagite. Why did he choose to put into the Holy Bible this phrase about where this man is from, what his background is? Now, Agag, because he's an Agagite, Agag was the name given to the king of the Amalekites. So it's a title. Just like Ahasuerus was a title, Pharaoh is a title, Agag was a title. And again, just like Ahasuerus, the name became synonymous with the person. And so there's a guy in the Bible whose name is Agag, but Agag is a title. And so the, so the Agags, people from uh, the Agagites, as it says there, they're actually part of the people that are called the Amalekites. And Haman is an Amalekite, but he's more than just an Amalekite. He's of the royal line of the Amalekites. He is an Agagite. His great-great-grandfather, whatever the number was, was one of the kings of the Amalekites. And they called him Agag. And the first time we are introduced to the Amalekites, it's found in Genesis chapter 36. And I know this church loves genealogies. And we spent nine weeks or so on the genealogies of First Chronicles. And so I know how much you enjoy it. And there's a genealogy in Genesis chapter 36. You could read it on your own for fun reading. And there you discover that there's a man by the name of Amalek. And that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. You're familiar with the name of Esau, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. So Amalek is the grandson of Esau, born to his son Eliphaz, and, and Eliphaz's concubine, a lady by the name of Timnah. 
So that's the first Amalek that we have in the Bible, the grandson of Esau. And if you're familiar with Esau, his descendants became known as the Edomites, uh, for whatever reason, it's a long story. But anyway, you have Esau, sometimes called Edom, his descendants are the Edomites. And if you're familiar with the Edomites and Esau, you know that they were the perennial adversaries of the Jewish people. And that it actually dates all the way back before Esau and his twin brother Jacob were even born. And you know the story perhaps where they were warring in the womb of the mother. And the mother goes to her gynecologist she's like, what is going on? And the guy, the prophet there, he's prophet slash gynecologist, you know, he says, there's two nations in your womb and they're killing each other in there. They're fighting with one another in there. And even all the way until... They are both born. They're grabbing onto each other and fighting one another. And so Esau, the Edomites, perennial at war with the Jewish people. Following the lead of their grandfather, the Amalekites, grandfather Esau, the Amalekites also become the persistent uh, enemy of Israel. Culminating, so all through the books of Moses, Genesis and then into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on, constant fighting between the Amalekites and the Jews. And in Exodus chapter 17, we read this the Lord, this is spoken through Moses, it says, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that's the testimony of Scripture. That's the very thing that happens constant war between the Amalekites and the Jewish people. And so I won't go through every one of them, but you fast forward through the opening books of the Bible. Numbers chapter 14, a war with Amalek. Numbers 24, another one. Deuteronomy 25, in the days of Joshua, excuse me, before Joshua, Judges chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 10. Every one of those, you have the Amalekites opposing the Israelites in war in one form or another. And ultimately it culminates in the tumultuous this relationship culminates in the event that is found in 1 Samuel 15. Now, 1 Samuel 15 is about 500 years after Moses. Okay, that's when Samuel was around. So for 500 years, the Amalekites and the Jews have been warring with one another. And we read that the Lord says to Saul, who's the king of Israel now in 1 Samuel, it says this, Thus thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek has done to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Strong words could not be more clear what was expected of Saul. That after hundreds of years of warring with the people of Israel, that the Lord had had enough, and Saul is instructed to devote to destruction, as it says there, all that they have. He says, essentially, go and finish this battle against the Amalekites once and for all. The struggle's done, he says to Saul. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 15, you know that Saul is only partially obedient to that command. And we know this, that partial obedience is really disobedience. Partial obedience is really disobedience. Paul does go into battle against the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, 7 tells us that the Lord grants victory to Saul. It says Saul defeated the Amalekites. 
But Saul doesn't fully, and the people, not just Saul, they don't fully obey the command of the Lord to devote to destruction all the people and all their cattle. So rather, what we read in verse 9 is this, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, and the best of the oxen, and the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Paul, or excuse me, Saul is told to devote to destruction everything, and rather give it as a sacrifice, essentially. And Paul and Saul, sorry, I keep doing that. Saul and the people, as I said, no problem destroying what's despised and worthless, but that which is good, they keep alive, including King Agag. And so the fatted calf, well, I'm keeping that. The fatted sheep, the, the oxen, and even the king. Essentially, here's what they do. They say, God, you can have the three-legged ox and the 100-year-old sheep. We're not going to need those. But Lord, this three-year-old thoroughbred, this thing looks pretty good. We're going to keep this. And another phrase you can tuck away, a sacrifice which costs you nothing isn't much of a sacrifice. And King Saul, the people, they see the items of value. They see the king, and they keep him alive. They keep the items of value, despite God's clear instruction. They keep the king alive. Perhaps Saul has a better idea than killing the king. Maybe he's going to put him in jail and make him suffer for the rest of his life. Maybe that's what he thought would be better. Maybe he's going to set him up as some sort of trophy so everybody could see, wow, King Saul conquered... Finally, a king that conquered the Amalekites after all of these years, or whatever. For whatever reason, he deduces that his plan is better than God's plan, and so he only partially obeys the Lord. And it says in chapter 15, verse 11 of 1 Samuel, that the Lord takes notice of this partial obedience. And the Lord says, I regret, regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And certainly this isn't the first time that Saul had done something like this. And it's because of this act of disobedience that the kingdom is taken from Saul and would ultimately be given to King David, a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man, but a man that worshiped the Lord. And God would replace Saul as king. Now Samuel is the prophet at the time of Saul, and he would go on to obey the Lord's command. He would kill the king of the Amalekites, but it seems as if others that, that Saul had spared, perhaps they have escaped or whatever, they went on to live. And we know that because one of them, of the people, is here now, 500 years later, 600 years later actually, in the book of Esther. And so because of Saul's compromise 600 years earlier, one of those des descendants that had escaped, one of those Amalekites, now shows up on the scene. And his presence on the scene is not going to be very good. And so when you're reading the book of Esther and you read Haman, an Agagite, was appointed you know, an official of the king, and you look at that idea of Agag and who are the Agagites and why am I learning about this, go back in your scripture to discover because what you're seeing is Saul's compromise affects other people. Even 600 years later. Obey the Lord. So dads... When you compromise in small areas, your kids are being affected. And their kids are being affected. 
and moms and friends with one another and so on. Follower of Christ, obey the Lord. It's a lesson that we see there. Even if you don't fully understand, even if you think you have a better idea. Saul was wrong. So let's go back and look now. Starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage uh, to the, for the king had commanded, them concer- commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not. Now, the Bible does not forbid us bowing in front of another as a form of respect and honor. And so, you know, you might bow in the presence of a king or something like that. Now, Americans don't like it for a variety of reasons. One is because our Constitution, we're not subjects of anyone. Our elected officials are subjects of us. We pick them, we get them out of there or whatever. So Americans aren't too fond on the whole idea. But the Bible does not forbid, you know, you sort of giving a little bow or you honoring a person in that particular way. And there are examples of godly individuals in the Bible doing so, bowing down. Moses, for instance, with his father-in-law. What the Bible does forbid is bowing down in obeisance to another. That means it crosses over from sort of a head nod of respect and it enters into the realm of worship. The Bible does certainly forbid that, as we sang in one of our songs this morning, that we bow down to no other. And so for Mordecai to bow down in this way, and by the way, the Persians looked at their leaders as descendants of the gods, as many nations um, throughout the history of the world have. And so Mordecai knows that this has crossed over from a polite, respectful, you know, bowing of my head, you know, tilting of my eyes to the form of worship. And Mordecai was unwilling to do so. As it says in verse 2, he would not do so. That phrase, pay homage, because it it speaks there, it says uh, he did not bow down or pay homage. That phrase, pay homage, may indicate that it's more than Mordecai didn't want to worship Haman, which he shouldn't, but that he wasn't willing to show this guy any respect. And perhaps that's because he knew he was an Agagite or whatever, and he knows the relationship between the Jewish people and the Amalekites or so on. But either way here, he's not, certainly not going to bow down on the ground. And the idea, if you, if you can picture in your mind, of the modern day like Muslim man that would get down on their knees and their whole face is down to the ground, that's the sort of bowing down that is being described here. And so Mordecai is certainly not willing to do that. He's not even willing to give a head nod. And so you can imagine quite conspicuously standing there, shoulders back, head up tall, as everybody else is down on all fours. And here it is, it says in verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down with the exception of Mordecai. And, you know, they're human like we are. Soon people are beginning to talk. People are kind of glancing up as their head is down on the ground, glancing up. Mordecai looks like he's 15 feet tall. And people are going to begin to ask him. They do. It says, why do you transgress the king's command? They say, we'll put it in other words, what's the matter with you? Why do you have to be so different? Why can't you just go along to get along like everybody else here is doing? Why do you got to take your stand? Day after day, it says in verse 4, that they begin to speak to him day after day after day. They begin to badger him. They're trying to convince him to bow down. Just worship the official. Cross your fingers behind your back if you need to. God knows your heart. Just do it or whatever. Trying to convince him. But courageously, it says in verse 4 that Mordecai refuses to listen. 
And it appears, as it says there in verse 4, that he tells him the reason for his stubborn persistence is because he's a Jew. Not that, well, I'm a Jew and we just don't do stuff like that. That I don't do it because of this reason. As a Jew, I was told not to. And so I will not bow down. He tells him essentially that his faith will not allow him to do so. Now, I can't help but think if that's how it went down, that he said, look, I'm a Jew, and as a Jew we bow down to no other but the true God of heaven, that somebody responded to him and said, your faith? You're a captive in a foreign land. God hasn't been faithful to you. Why should you be faithful to him? I'm sure you've probably heard that. As you tend to walk with God, people will call into question the wisdom of your decision. Perhaps Mordecai heard that. Maybe Mordecai heard something like this, your faith, if you were really a man of faith, why are you even here? Didn't the Jews have the opportunity to leave a little while ago, but in compromise they chose to stay here? If you were really a Christian, people now begin to challenge every time you said a bad word or every time you lost your temper, they remind you and they draw back to this idea, if you were really a believer, as you now want to take a stand for Christ, Essentially saying, why bother? You didn't take a stand back then. So we don't exactly know what is going on here. I also wonder if maybe in this process, maybe a friend of Mordecai said, you're going to get in trouble. If you don't bow down, they're going to kill you. And maybe Mordecai responded, look, the Lord will protect me. I trust the Lord. And of course, people said, All right, well, I don't. Bow down. You know, get down here with us or whatever. But Mordecai, maybe that's the meaning of that phrase there where it says they, they go and tell on him to see whether Mordecai's words would stand or not. Maybe he said to them, God's going to protect me in all of this. Much like in the book of Daniel, those, uh, those men, they wouldn't bow down. They wouldn't do what they were asked to do. And they said, look, the Lord will protect us. And if he doesn't, then he doesn't. They were trusting in him. They're thrown into the fire. You know the story, perhaps. Uh, but here, Mordecai, they, they go and they tell on him. I imagine like tattlers. Oh, yeah? God's going to protect you. Let's see how much he'll protect you. We're going to tell Haman. So they do. They go and tell Haman. Now, I said earlier that Mordecai must have been quite conspicuous standing there. But it does seem in verse 5 that Haman hadn't taken notice previously. But he does take notice now. It says, Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, and he was filled with fury. So here's an interesting thing. Haman didn't apparently notice before, and he wasn't being bowed down to by this particular guy, and it didn't bother him at all. You know, this idea of, what's the phrase, uh, ignorance is bliss, really. Like, and so please don't come and tell me bad things about that are happening to me or whatever, because I just like being in the dark about it. And I'm quite happy being in the dark about it. You know? And so similarly here, if they had never told him, everything might have been fine for the guy. But yet they do. They come, they tell him, he's filled with fury. Don't you know who I am? I'm the prime minister of this nation. Demonstrate to me that you know who I am. Fill me up inside with confidence because you are demonstrating to me to know who I am. Haman should have had the confidence already. He doesn't need a guy to bow down to remind him that he is the prime minister and second in charge of the entire empire. And yet Haman's a weak man, as we're going to see. And so he allows this slight to fill him with fury, and he decides he's going to punish not only Mordecai, 
But Mordecai's whole family, it's like the old Italian mafia. I want you dead, and I want your whole family dead, or whatever. He wants everybody dead. Sorry for my Italian brothers. I'm Italian. I'm allowed to make fun of my Italian heritage or whatever. Apparently, they say that that's allowed. All right? But he's going to kill everyone, not just Mordecai, not even just Mordecai's immediate family, but he wants to kill every Jew that walks the earth. As we're going to see, verse 6 says, He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai that he was a Jew, Haman then sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Because of Mordecai's perceived slight, Haman's solution is to kill the entire Jewish race. And the entire Jewish race at that time numbered over 2 million people. And some people estimate that it numbered into the tens of millions of people. And so because one man's slight, he wants to kill tens of millions of people. There is more going on here than one lunatic despot looking to take revenge on someone that has bothered him. This call of Haman to kill all the Jewish people, to kill the Jewish race, is a decision that comes from the pit of hell. And we have seen historically, we have seen biblically, that Satan hates the Jewish people. J. Vernon McGee, an old fella, great guy. I don't know him, but writer, commentator, speaker, or whatever. He's dead now, long dead. But J. Vernon McGee says that Satan hates the Jewish people because they were the repository of the scriptures that God entrusted to them the scriptures and that from them the Lord's Messiah either would come or has come, depending on the timing. And so this is a decision, Haman's decision here is inspired by Satan. And it's not the first time that Satan sought to kill off the Jewish people, nor would it be the last time that Satan would do so. Inspire such wickedness against the Jews. And so whether it was the Pharaoh in Egypt looking to eradicate the Jewish people, or it was Herod in the time of Christ, or it was Hitler in more recent history, We have seen historically that the devil repeatedly unleashes his hatred against the Jews, a hatred so intense that his genocidal rage would not be satiated until the entire race was wiped off of the planet. And so Haman here is just one more Satan-inspired ruler seeking to destroy God's chosen people. And so inspired by Satan, he develops a plan. He communicates it to Hazarus. They're going to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth. The plan's going to begin, verse 7 there, with selecting a day for the genocide to occur. Now, the Persians were a very superstitious people. They believed that God, the gods blessed certain days. And so they're going to cast the lot, or as it says here, they're going to cast per. The idea would draw straws or something. So you kind of picture it this way. They took all the months of the year, wrote them on a piece of paper, dropped them in a hat, They took all the days of the month, wrote them on a piece of paper, dropped it in another hat. They pull a month out. They pull a day out. And that's the day that the gods have determined that the Jews would be wiped from the earth. And since the gods determined that day, certainly the gods would bless that day and our endeavor would be successful. Now, of course, we know that there is no such thing as foreign gods. We know that there is only one true God. And what I think is interesting, we know this, that what these folks think is the gods determining, or even what these folks think is just dumb luck that is occurring, 
The scripture says in the Proverbs this, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That even in this wickedness, that the Lord is sovereign. That none of these things are outside of the Lord's purview and out of his sover- outside of his sovereignty. And so you'll notice if you take, day, take notice of the day, it says that it will be, uh, they cast it month after month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adder. And so they are, that gives at least 11 months until this particular edict is going to be put into place. And it's, it's over 11 months. It could be 11 and a half months until it. Essentially what the Lord has done is given a full year to the Jews to get ready for this particular event that is ahead here. And again, for the Persians, they just thought it was dumb luck or the gods determining it. You would have expected Haman to be rooting for, like, tomorrow. Give me tomorrow, Lord. Come on, give me tomorrow. And he pulls it out. And instead, he gets a year into the future here. And that allows ample time for the circumstances to arise which will thwart Haman's plan. The next day probably wouldn't have done so. And so with a date supposedly chosen by the gods, King Haman approaches King Ahasuerus. It says in verse 8, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples. In all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from those of the other people. They do not keep the laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And so if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. So he approached the king. Notice he describes, he says, a certain people scattered across the kingdom. Ooh, they're a terrible people. They must be eradicated from the planet, he says. Now notice, Haman never even mentions who the people are to the king. Notice, Ahasuerus never even asks who the people are. Which is even more shocking when you consider that in a moment he's going to give the order to commit genocide against that entire race of people and he doesn't even know the name of the people, who the people actually are. No questions, well, who are these people? How many people are we talking about? What laws exactly did they break that we're so concerned about? Who are your corroborating witnesses? None of these things. Just a simple, well, Haman, if you think it's best, go for it. Go ahead and kill 10 million people if you think that's the best thing for our... And it, it drives home the tremendous indifference to human life that we've already pointed out that Xerxes had. Xerxes had no problem killing off a lot of people or sending people to their death. And what's interesting is the statement of Haman isn't even true. So statement says there's a people with reckless disregard for your laws. You know, they will not submit. That's not even true at all. The reality is that the Jews had proven themselves for 200 years, first under the Babylonians, or close to it, and now under the Persians, as perfectly compliant citizens, perhaps too compliant, that they wouldn't even go back to the land when they had the option to do so. And so Haman chooses to keep that information out. He goes to the king. He tells him what he does. Notice he also influences the king by saying, Uh, that he will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasuries as a result of his decision. That's estimated to be between 25 and 30 million dollars. And so he says to the king, not only that, not only will we get rid of some lawbreakers, but we'll put 30 million dollars into the king's 
treasuries. And certainly that was a number that got the king's attention. We know historically, it's not in our Bibles, but we know historically that the king spent lots and lots of money to take over Greece and that it failed and that the treasuries were suffering. And so the king now finds out 30 million bucks. Now this tells us one of two things. No government officials should have access to $30 million of their own money. Okay? And I don't really, I didn't mean it as a joke, but I'm glad you laughed. I'm, I'm here to entertain. Um, so either this guy was skimming a little bit and put it in his personal bank account, because if he's a government official, he's got a salary that's set at a certain limit, he shouldn't have 30 million bucks. So it either means he's skimming a little bit and putting it aside, or what it means, what he's referring to is, look, when all these Jews are killed, we'll seize all their property. We have big sales, we'll sell it, the cars, the houses, and so on, and we'll take the money and we'll put it in the treasury. I think it probably means that. But nonetheless, he sweetens the pot by telling the king here that, you know, it'll be financially good to kill off all the Jews. And so Ahasuerus is swayed. He grants full power to Haman. You see that there in verse 10. He gives him his signet ring, as it says, I'll read it. So the king took his ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, and the money also is given to you. Not the money, not the 30 million, but the money to implement this particular plan is given to you. The people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Now, the king's signet ring would essentially have been uniquely designed for the king. It would have been a raised insignia, and on any government document, they would put some hot wax, and then he would shove his ring down into it, and so into the hot wax, his insignia would then show. And with the king then, that's his signature, essentially. And the king takes the ring off, and he hands it to Haman. He says, do whatever you think is best. So he gives him the biggest blank check possible. He gives it to this guy and says, do whatever you want with it. And Haman could have ran around and made all kinds of laws and just stamped the king's signature, signed the king's name into those things. He must have really trusted him, as you can see there, verse 11. And the king also gives him the money. So the plan is a go. Now, that's all, now all that is required is for the plan to be in, implemented. Verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of the peoples. Remember, from India to Ethiopia, 7.5 million square miles. It goes out to those places. It was written in King Ahasuerus' name, sealed with his signet ring. Letters were sent by the couriers to all the provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adder, and to plunder their goods. And so the legal team gets together. Proper wording of the bill is finalized. An edict is determined, and it's sent all around that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews, male, female, little kid, uh, little girl, little boy, that they were to be completely annihilated from the earth. You know, it's interesting how similar this decree is to the one that God gave to Saul earlier. And if you want to kind of pull back and, and just look at this in sort of a spiritual sense, if you want to play around with Satan and you want to compromise with Satan and think that the enemy is your friend, he will turn on you eventually and he will seek to destroy you. And so either you win or let him win, one or the other, but make the choice. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and the couriers hurriedly went out by order of the king uh, and it was issued in Susa, the capital, and King Haman 
The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And again, if you're a guy there, unless you were a person there in the know, all of a sudden all you hear is, hey, the Jews are going to all be executed in 11 months. No idea what is going on. These people that were neighbors and relatively good citizens, as far as we could tell, for over 200 years of this empire, now all of a sudden the wrath of the empire is being turned against them. And again, we're not talking about 50 people. We're talking about millions of people that all have to go for some reason on the 13th day of the month of Adder. So no wonder that the city, as it says in verse 15, is thrown into confusion as people are like, what is going on? It doesn't look good for the Jewish people. A decree of destruction has been pronounced. Perhaps the Jewish people, after all these years of God's protection, miraculous protection, perhaps after all of these years, they finally have met their match. You might even make the case that after all these years, God had finally had enough with their compromise and he was going to let them get theirs. Well, you have to come back next week to find out what's going to happen. Chapter 4. Please do not read ahead this time because I don't want you to ruin the surprise. You can read ahead if you want to. But we'll find out what happens in the next couple of chapters. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture. Lord, we look at uh, the circumstances. I think a lot of us have been in circumstances that seem so utterly hopeless. And we wonder, uh, how is God going to handle these circumstances? And and Lord, I'll ruin the surprise. Confidently, we know you will in your perfect timing. Lord, we've been seeing your hand through this book, and we know that you're in charge of all these things. That does not take away the difficulties or the challenges of life. But we do pray that through our study of your word that you would help us, you would encourage us, Lord, to, uh, to keep trusting you even when the circumstances seem to be crying out that we shouldn't. And so, Father, I do ask that you would minister to us where each of us are at this time, all of us different people going through different things. And so use your word to minister to our heart in the deepest places that we'd walk out of here confident that the Lord just spoke to me and ministered to my heart today through his word.